I learned so much of what I rely on today from my dad about not making excuses. My dad didn't have the, or my, you know, my mom, they didn't have the luxury of making any excuses. It was do or die, almost literally. And so that's why my dad was driving a, you know, a truck when he was 12 and, and he would hobo on freight trains, you know, in his early teens. And um, he owned three houses and to put four of his five kids through college by the time, you know, he had died. And he, uh, you know, he was a plant manager, a large manufacturing company. He had a seventh grade education. He, he left school when his, his mom um, was, was killed. And um, he just did the right things. The adversity was significant in his life. But he was a person that said to himself, I think my grandmother, you know, before she died at 37 years old, uh, instilled in him the necessity just to make the right decisions, period, no matter what your circumstances are. Welcome to the Transition Drill Podcast. As members of the first responder and military communities, we need to be planning today for our transition from these careers. Because unfortunately, as many have experienced, these careers can tell us the ride is over before we're ready for it to be done. My name is Paul Pantani and I've spent the past 30 years in law enforcement, working in various assignments and promoting through the ranks of leadership. With the help of my guests, who like you are either former or current military members or first responders, the goal of this podcast is to provide you with information to help you in your planning. But just as important, we can't forget to take care of ourselves today. So I'm also gonna have guests who are gonna talk about how to be more physically and mentally fit. Welcome back, everyone. I'm joined this week by Mark Garrett. Mark spent 30 years with the California Highway Patrol and retired as a chief in 2020. Today, he's the director of security for a large financial institution. In our conversation, we talk about transitioning into the private sector and what he looks for when hiring new personnel. We also talk about Mark's time as a member of the United States national cycling team and his potential for the Olympics, as well as competing in Germany at the World Para Championships where along with his tandem bike partner, Pam Fernandez, who is blind, earned two world titles in 2002. Thank you for taking the time to listen. Please enjoy episode 74. Where's hometown for you? So I was actually, believe it or not, talking about California. I was born in Hollywood. Born on Sunset Boulevard, Kaiser Hospital, 1963. Not on the Sunset Strip. <laughs> not, not on the Sunset Strip. Not quite. Third floor, maternity ward. But um, but I actually grew up a few miles away from there in southeast Los Angeles, Watts, uh, by Avalon and Imperial. So I, I grew up really kind of in the heart of uh, the location where the Watts riots started, the, the original Watts riots, 1965. My, dot, my dad built that house there in the 50s, and I was born in 1963 there. And then uh, was there for about 10 years until I was 10 years old. And then we moved to the San Gabriel Valley. What's now the, the 105 freeway bought our property out in 1972. And um, so my dad had a friend who lived in Alhambra in the San Gabriel Valley. And we I moved didn't, there. Just real quick, because I remember when the 105 went in, I didn't remember that they bought the land that early on because the 105 didn't open until the late 90s. Correct, late 90s. This is how slow government can work. And they yeah, they bought, the, they actually allocated all this stuff, the state legislature, and I guess probably the federal government's involved, but but uh, in the late 60s, and then they, they, bought, they bought the house I grew up in in 1972. And they gave you a year to 
to move, you know, find some place. Yeah. And so, so I grew up in Alhambra, my formative years, I guess you'd say were in Alhambra and uh, went to high school there and junior college and um, then went away to San Jose State University. That's where I grew up, you know, most of my formative years in Alhambra. Large family, small family. So I'm the youngest of five, uh, three girls, two boys. Um, One of my sisters has has, uh, passed away about 10 years ago or so, but um, yeah, five kids. My parents were married 60 years until my dad passed That's away. That's cool. Yeah. Not, definitely not the norm anymore. It's not. You know, uh, I love to, you know, tell my parents' story, but it, it it's not the norm anymore. Look here, I'm 59. I waited until I was 50 years old to get married for the first time. And, uh, I want to make sure he did it right. <laughs> I guess so. I was very, very methodical. <laughs> um but, uh, yeah, I have one kid, eight years old, and, and that is more, like you said, Paul, that's more the norm now. And I'm not, you know, thrilled about it. I, you know, in other words, yeah, you know, maybe I, I, it would have been cool to have a, a larger family. And I'm so happy now the way it turned out. But you're right. For a lot of people, including myself, smaller is more than the norm as far as size of your family. You mentioned you'd like to tell your parents' story. You, your dad has an amazing story, and if you would like to share it, I'd love to hear it. Well, yeah, I would. I'm, you know, I'm so proud of both of my parents and my dad. Um, particularly, I think has an interesting story. But my dad uh, uh, grew up in uh, Dallas, Texas. In he was born in 1921. So born 101 years ago, and um, so he grew up uh, during the, the Depression. Um, in the deep South, Jim Crow, my dad's black, my mom's mixed race. And so they both had it hard. You know, it was one thing being black in the deep South, um, during the depression and Jim Crow, but uh, my mom being mixed race, you know, she was, you know, she was kind of a, you know, a square looking for a round hole. Didn't really fit in, uh, <clears throat> very well anyway. His mom. <clears throat> no, no, my mom. Oh, okay. Yeah, my mom. And so. Um, but they met when my dad was 12 and my mom was six. My dad was driving a truck when he was 12 years old, um, and delivering ice for ice boxes, put the block of ice on top to keep the the food cold in the ice box. And he used to deliver ice to my mom's house. That's how they met my, my dad. uh, That was out here in LA. No, that was in Dallas, Texas. And, um, my, my grandmother, my father's. Uh, mother was murdered when he was 12 years old. Oh, wow. His dad was not at home. Uh, he was close with my grandfather, but he wasn't involved on a daily basis with my dad. So my dad was on his own at 12 years old and um, took care of himself. Again, there was no driver's licenses you know, <laughs> back then. And 12 years old, he was driving d- delivery truck. If you can reach the pedals, you can drive. Yeah, pretty much. That was your, your license, your length of your legs. Um he started hoboing on steam freight trains from Dallas, Texas to Los Angeles because there's a lot more work for blacks in California than there were there was in Texas. He'd come out here um, and send money back to his older brother, took care of his brother. Um, and eventually, when he and my mom married, when she was 16, he was 21, uh, they came to California. My dad was drafted in January of 42, right after Pearl Harbor served uh three and a half years uh in the uh army air corps so he served in both the european and the pacific theater he was one of the very small uh portion of gi's that served in both theaters and um 
you know, came home uh, under the Golden Gate Bridge in 1945 after J- Japan surrendered. My dad was on the island of Tinian when the atomic bombs were delivered that ended the war. And uh, so there's a lot more to it, but I learned so much of what I rely on today from my dad about not making excuses. My dad didn't have the, or my, you know, my mom, they didn't have the luxury of making any excuses. It was do or die, almost literally. And so that's why my dad was driving a, you know, a truck when he was 12 and, and he would hobo on freight trains, uh, you know, in his early teens. And um, he owned three houses and to put four of his five kids through college by the time, you know, he had died. And he, uh, you know, he was a plant manager, a large manufacturing company. He had a seventh grade education. He, he left school when his, his mom um, was, was killed. And um, he just did the right things. It, the adversity was, was significant in his life. But he was a person that, that said to himself, I think my grandmother, you know, before she died at 37 years old, uh, instilled in him the, the necessity just to make the right decisions, period, no matter what your circumstances are. Was your dad, as a kid growing up, was your dad open with you about his life experiences? And did he really try to, to share a lot of it with you or keep a lot of it inside? You know, I, I, it's a really good question. My dad was, um, my dad was a guy who led by example. And so I learned, obviously, um, that basic story from him, but he didn't, he didn't beat me over the head with, um, you know, you have to do this, you have to do that. But he did tell me what he did. And I saw obviously how successful he had been under circum- circumstances. Thank God I'll never have to face. And I thought, well, my God, if this man can do this, then maybe there's something to his formula. One of the things that he would say to me often, what, you know, as I was growing up, you know, in, in, in my teens and early twenties and beyond, you know, he would see something, you know, going on in my life, whatever, whether it's buying a car or whatever it is, or something at work. And I would talk to him about, and he would say, look, Mark, you're a grown man or you're 18 years old, whatever it is. He said, here's what I would do. Here's what I would do. But you have to understand, you have to make the decision that's best for you. I will never forget that. And he said it to me many, many times, for, you know, under different circumstances. And he meant it. So he, he understood that there's not one size fits all in life, but there are some very basic principles that do apply to everybody in every situation. Did he enjoy his time in the military? You know, I, as, odd, as odd as that sounds. Yeah. No, I mean, he, he had some um, funny stories about the military. I don't know if I would characterize really any part of it as enjoying it. Um, I'll tell you this. Um, again, he told me some, there were some very tragic stories from the military. Guys jumping off transport ships because they had never been more than 50 miles from their house. And so now they're out in the middle of the Atlantic uh, specifically when they were leaving Europe after VE day, they thought they were going home. And then after they got out in the open sea over the, 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 the PA system comes, we're diverting, we're diverting. <laughs> we're now going to prepare for the invasion of Japan. He was literally a few guys committed suicide. 
Um, so there are stories like that. They're very tragic. There's some other more lighthearted stories, but one of the things that, um, kind of sums up his experience in the military was when he came home. Now, again, this is a, uh, this is a, you know, at that time, was he 25 or 24 when he got home and had been subjected to real racism, true racism, um, uh, active kind of codified racism. I mean, my father was the guy who had to ride on the back of the bus. You know, kids don't even know that even happened anymore, but he was the guy that rode on the back of the bus. My mom was the person who rode on the back of the bus. So when he got home from his time in the military in, in multiple countries and, and continents, he served in North Africa, Sicily, Italy, France, and then in the Pacific and Island Tinian. But he said, look, he said, when I got home, Mark, he said, as many things that were wrong with this country, especially that time, the 1940s, black, black people, he said, there's no place like America, no place like America. Now, he never used this word, but, but what I gathered from this and what I really learned and appreciated about that was the word perspective. And without perspective, you know, you're kind of without a rudder in the water, when you just don't understand what kind of the guardrails are, what different types of realities there are in life. And um, when you compare um, maybe your reality with perfection, it can really distort how you wake up every day, your mindset. It can really screw with you. And if you think that things are supposed to be easy, they're supposed to be perfect. No one's ever, you know, supposed to offend you. You can never be the, you know, the victim of, you know, whatever circumstance. My father uh, uh, understood, and and more so after after his service, but even before that, certainly, he understood that life is made up of a series of challenges. Period. No matter who you are, and what ultimately. Um, either makes people happy or keeps people happier or makes people keeps people happy or makes makes them happier is how you deal with circumstances, taking responsibility, not being so um, uh, ready to blame somebody else or something else for how you feel, but deciding how you're going to feel and act upon it. So that's a, a lengthy thing about, you know, did he enjoy the military? He brought something back from the military, I think, that added to his happiness. Well, you bring a good example to it in, in looking at it in a global picture in that you use the, the term perspective. So, yes, to, to in no way underplay what he experienced here in this country and the way he was mistreated simply because of the color of his skin. And without the perspective of ever leaving this country to go serve and fight, it would be very easy to think that's how this country is. But as bad as it was, he had the perspective to say, I can navigate those problems when I compare it to how bad it is anywhere else. And you can even say that today in 2022, you know, without perspective, it's very easy to think that what we're dealing with or what a person is dealing with or what they're experiencing is either the best they've ever had or the worst they've ever had because they don't have that perspective. So perspective is what makes your ability to truly judge, is this really good or is it really bad? Well, I, you summed it up perfect. 
I, I, I agree. You know, the challenges like, uh, we, we know we're talking a, you know, a little before the show started about working out and keeping your, your body fit. No, nothing, no one, no body, literally a body, no mind grows without resistance. And uh, so you, we can use that analogy. And so my father, um, either overtly or just maybe, um, uh, you know, just kind of through experience, he understood, he appreciated that challenges, as long as you have some set of principles to respond to them, can and will make you a better person if you do the right thing. So, um, yeah, what you said is 100% right. I was, and my reasoning for the question of did he enjoy his time in the military is because at a very young age and not a lot of opportunities for a young black man, I almost kind of wonder, did he ever consider making a career out of the military or was it when his enlist, his enlistment, his draft was done, he was done? He was done. And, and uh, like I said, there are some, there are some lighthearted stories that I can probably conjure up, but, but um, he already had his, his daughter, my oldest sibling who passed away from cancer, I said about a decade or so ago, um, she was born when he was overseas. And, um, and when he, when he brought my mom and my sister Jeannie from Dallas to California, um, he, he'd already been here a number of times, but they all fell in love with Southern California. And when which he, nobody else ever does. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. He was, I'll tell you right now, they, they were part of that massive wave, especially uh, immediate post-World War II. Um, it, really in Southern California, look at, you know, Costa Mesa, Newport Beach and Downey and these places that grew because the military uh, infrastructure had been here. They were building planes and they're building components for ships here in Southern California. Port of Los Angeles and Long Beach were so significant in the war effort. So you had all of these people in San Diego, you had all of these people that were part of the war effort that either had been assigned here in the military who had come out to work for private firms. And when the war was over, they stayed. And my dad was one of those. But um, so he had an opportunity to go to work for um, a, manufact a manufacturing company that he stayed with for 42 years and where he retired as a, a, plant, a plant manager. So he had this opportunity other than military. It was right where they were living pretty much down the street, you know, so to speak. And I think that was the better option in his mind at the time. So going back to you as a young boy growing up, what was your daily life like? What, were you good in school? Was, you know, no. sports? <laughs> <laughs> sports. So you hit school and sports. Okay, so I'm going to check you off on my list of all my other guests. Every, <laughs> it's amazing how many of my guests, nope, wasn't good in school. Didn't even want to be in school. No. I didn't, you know, and I had fun in school. I had fun in elementary school and, you know, and, and uh, uh, but especially when I got to high school, Paul, I'm telling you right now, I, I, I played football and ran track and I knew I had to maintain a C average in order to play. That was the rule, you know, the rule at, at my high school. And so um, we'll talk about, you know, I'm sure, you know, my, my, career law enforcement later on but when we get to that i want everybody to understand that that i got there my foundation in high school i literally graduated after four years 2.0 was my gpa when i left alhambra high school <laughs> because that was the minimum in order to keep playing football and running track 
which I loved, especially football. I can beat you. Can you? I started my senior year with a 1.97 GPA. You know what? I I am fortunate. I am fortunate that I finally, in my senior year, got a, a guidance counselor who talked to me the way I needed to be talked to, and literally, it was. So what branch of the military are you going into? Because you aren't doing anything else with your life and you really need to pull your head out of your ass. <laughs> you know, you're lucky. And um, I had, it's so funny, I had a, a, a um, physiology teacher who pretty much did the same thing with me. He pulled me aside and he actually talked to my parents and he said, Mark's not going to make it to this class unless he, he bears down. And, um, and so he like on the sly kind of tutored me over the summertime. This was, now this is my junior year. It wasn't my senior year, but he kept me at a 2.0 because he had spent time with me, um, that junior year, the end of my junior year. And with that, I think I put enough effort in because of his help, you know, my senior year, I never forgot that Mr. Nichols, you know, this is 40 plus years ago. Great, great man. But it's just so funny. Um, you know, on that topic, I look, academics are, you know, if you're going to be a doctor or a lawyer, you know, these, you know look, you, you've got to do, you've, you've got to excel. You've got to, you've got to be the best. I, and I went into college, I graduated, we talk about that and did actually very well in college. I really enjoyed it, but um, it's, it's not a determining factor. It's a factor. It's a factor, but there's so many other things that go into life. There's so many other things that go into success. And um, so it was just part of it. And I think, I think you and I have both, you know, done pretty well. And, and, and people can see that, well, if you were just kind of an average, you know, guy or gal in high school, it may not be the end of the world. It's definitely not the end of the world. And I want to temper how I say this. There is a benefit to education and, and furthering yourself in this world, unfortunately, with that piece of paper sometimes is required. Correct. And the thing I would say is, is that like both you and I, when we were in high school, academics were not a priority. It wasn't until later in life, especially for me, that it did become a priority. And and I, I was able to turn that corner and enjoy learning and I do believe that for each one of us, if academics is in your future, be open to it, but be open to it because you want to go to it, you know, and understand that you've got to put the effort in to get a benefit out of it. If you're going to college merely to just say, I have a degree, I could say that might not be worth it. Well, um, you're preaching the choir philosophically. I think you put it very well. Have a purpose. Have a purpose. If your purpose is to acquire a piece of paper that doesn't mean anything, well, it speaks for itself. It doesn't necessarily mean anything. Get a criminal justice degree. (laughs) (laughs) You know, know, when I was in recruitment law enforcement, I would see this all the time. You know, people have a, a criminal justice degree, which is fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But it, it doesn't indicate to me who you are, what you're capable of, your work ethic, things like that. But you're right. In other words, if you have a purpose, you you need to go into this field. Here's your five or ten or fifteen year 
game plan and this academic training, this degree, these certifications are part of that by all means, 100%. It's like you, I want to be tempered with this. I don't need to downplay the importance of education. It is just knowing exactly what a particular degree or a number of credits or a number of time or service, what they are worth to the plan you have. You need to have a plan in order to figure out what ingredients to put into that that cake, so to speak. Otherwise, you're just throwing stuff at the wall and hoping it sticks. Um, and, and things now, you know, college, look, I went to San Jose state university. I waited tables and worked my way through it. My parents paid for my first year of, 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 um, my uh, tuition, the first semester, first semester. And after that, I worked my way through college and got a degree in public relations, law enforcement, public relations, who knows, but I took care of myself. I had $6,000 of loans when I, uh, graduated, paid it back to bank of America and, you know, it was relatively painless and $6,000 in loans. Did you go to college in 1902? Pretty much. <laughs> pretty much. Well, of course I think $6,000 doesn't even get you an entrance exam no, anymore. No, it certainly won't get you your first two weeks of a quarter. No, but you know, that's the thing. It's like you burden yourself with a lot of this money and you're working at Starbucks. You got your four-year degree in the wall, but you know, so everything's give and take in life and you got to have a plan. And I know that right now, you know, not trying to go off on an awkward tangent, but there's a lot of talk about the student debt relief. And, and I do believe that for some kids who have a, for instance, if you know, coming out of high school that you want to be a lawyer, there's only one way to get there. You got to go to law school. But also too, if you're coming out of high school and going to college just because you want the college experience and you're going to come out with that degree in 16th century English literature, you have to understand there's not a job market for that degree. And so don't blame the government or society on your student debt for a degree that doesn't have a job market behind it. Absolutely. Again, and once again, you summarize my, my 90 second diatribe into 10 seconds. It's exactly right. Couldn't, I couldn't agree more. And again, this is have understanding, you know, in kind of a cost benefit analysis. How much time will it cost me? How much money will it cost me? Will this degree enable me to pay my loan back through uh, a job I secure because of this degree? Uh, and if not, you have to understand their consequences. Like you said, um, with the whole student debt forgiveness thing, and that's a whole different can of worms we could talk about. But we can, we can certainly talk about this. It certainly now puts you in a position of hoping someone else is going to come along and 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 save you or help you or mitigate your 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 obligations and it shouldn't be that way in, in my humble opinion um i know it sounds like well you know i walked you know two miles uphill both ways in the snow but but um really talking about my dad i mean it's like when you think about when you think about a seventh grade education which cost him nothing uh in the segregated school in in dallas texas in the 1930s um and then what he went on to do in the private sector, just because of his work work ethic and his values, um, that's a pretty good cost benefit analysis. Now, again, doctors, lawyers, engineers, all these things, you know, specialized um, training and degrees who absolutely have to have, absolutely, God bless you. And we start getting out of some of those types of fields and many, many more than that that I can't come up with then you really start need to start weighing out the cost benefit analysis. Really, is it really worth it? <clears throat> how much, how much social pressure is there for me to do this just because right. 
And, um, you know, I, I don't think I have that much on me. I, I, I got a degree cause I wanted to learn, by the way, I didn't know. <clears throat> I did two years of junior college before I figured out, Oh, you know, I'll try public relations and marketing. That's why I got a degree in worked. Going back to your dad though, with only having a seventh grade education, was he pushing college for you and your brothers and sisters? No, neither of my parents pushed college. Now, I say they didn't push. They certainly, they're pretty, I think it's kind of especially my dad. He goes, you're either going to work or you're going to be in college. Pretty much. I think especially with, with me, um, I was, you know, the fifth of five kids. Um, through, uh, four, yeah, four of the kids have college degrees, like I said. And, um, you know, everybody turned out to be, you know, professional, either in the private sector or in government, you know, like I was. But he was clear about doing something. Don't be stagnant. Do something. Um, and I think it came with, you know, again, from his experience, his work ethic, um, he hopped on a freight train to come to Los Angeles. Uh, you can go wait tables or work at McDonald's or get into junior college, but you're going to be doing something to better yourself, something. Um, he wasn't, my dad wasn't a hard ass. He wasn't, but he was, he was clear and understated way about you need to be taking care of yourself. And he, he had just a very, very good balance of, um, of influence without being heavy handed. As far as you coming out of high school, you mentioned that you did go to college. Did you have a game plan for your adulthood? What, what, what your future was going to be? What were you looking at at that time? No. <laughs> I tell people now, say, hey, have a game. You want to make a more definitive answer? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And, 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 and it is, I didn't have a game plan. I had a, you know, still, I have a lot of different interests and hobbies and things like that. And, and that was true 40 years ago. One of the things that I look, I did assume that, um, uh, I was going to end up going into advertising or, marketing for you know hewlett packard or you know whatever the sanitation company um when i got into public relations um in, in college and to that degree it chose that field um you know i always enjoyed talking with people and it was kind of a natural thing okay you know what i can get a piece of paper or kind of backs up my natural tendencies you know which is a good place to be in life if you can do that but I, I did get distracted because, we'll, you know, when we'll talk about the cycling stuff, that, that started at the same time I, 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 I uh, started at San Jose State University was a cycling career and found out that I was pretty good at it. And, and so that kind of distracted what, what general plan or direction I may have had with college. I, I stayed in college, I graduated, but it kind of watered down that what, what, amount of urgency I may have had was, was focused on cycling uh, to a great deal. One last question regarding college. You, you went towards the direction of public relations and, and media. Mm -hmm. Did you have anybody in your life that was, I don't want to refer to it as a mentor, but somebody you could model yourself after, or where did that niche come from, or at least that interest come from? Well, <clears throat> I can actually give you a, a, a specific, um, the the second part of your question is no, I didn't have anybody uh, specific in my life. 
family or friends. But um, when I graduated high school, I started at East Los Angeles College, junior college, right away in the next semester. <clears throat> and believe it or not, growing up, I was extremely shy. I mean, in, in public speaking. Not on a one-on-one level, but but I, I was terrified of public speaking. Um, happens to most people. And so when I started um, junior college, <coughs> pardon me, when I started junior college, um, or before I started, I thought, you know what? This is getting ridiculous. Mark, you need to get out of your shell. It's I don't know where this came from, but it was a decision I made. So I actually signed up for a debate class on purpose just to challenge myself, just as like, you got to stop this. I took a debate class. Fast forward at their final debate you had to do, whatever, um, um, for, for, for the class, for your grade. Um, my professor pulled me aside. I'm 18 years old. He goes, dude, you got to do this professionally. Uh, what do you mean? He goes, you know, this, it was great. I've been teaching this for 20 years and blah, blah, blah. He said, there's a, a, a debate competition coming up in a couple of months in Sacramento. It's going to be USC, UCLA, Sacramento State. And I'm at a little junior college. And I said, sir, I, I, I don't know. No, you're going to do great. Well, fast forward. He, we trained for months and months. I went up against all these big debaters from, and I won. And so I thought, well, maybe there's something here. And that was really kind of the spark that kind of got me interested in public relations, public speaking, marketing kind of thing. That's, that's, that's it in a nutshell, which kind of put me in that direction. Got it. So as you've already alluded to, and, and you got up to San Jose state and then how did the cycling thing happen? <laughs> uh, it's all, it, it really is all intertwined. So the reason I went to San Jose state is because my brother was an all American football player for Jack Elway, John Stat at Northridge, Cal State Northridge, when they still had a football program back in the 70s. So um, my brother had signed, got cut, signed, got cut by a couple of NFL teams for about two years before, before he finally gave up. And he played in the CFL, Canadian Football League, for one year. So I'm playing college at, at East Los Angeles. And he said, hey, Mark, you got to get out of there. You got to transfer up to San Jose. I'm going to call Coach Elway because Coach Elway had gone to San Jose now. And I thought, oh, you know what? I love football, but I thought, you know, I'm not as good as you, Danny. Not as good as you. And fast forward, he calls the coach and he goes, hey, send Mark up here. I walk on. They take me on the spring, the uh, spring uh, uh, squad. They put me up in a, a dorm room on a little partial scholarship just for my dorm room. And um, I said, I walked on and there's cuts, cuts, cuts throughout the spring, you know, spring season. I was the very last person to get cut after the spring game. I was devastated. So here I'd gone 400 miles away to San Jose State. Um, and um, I actually had been locally recruited by a couple of other junior colleges here uh, in Southern California. And it may have taken a different direction. Had I been mentored a little more rather than going up with the big boys? Who knows? But anyway, I got went up there and I didn't make it. I said, you know, I'm not going to go back home now as devastated as I am. I'm going to stay here, get my degree, and um, here we go. In the meantime, before I went up there, I had some friends who rode bicycles. And they said, hey, you got to get a bicycle and ride with us, like in the wintertime, stay in shape for football. High school, 
I said, no, 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 whatever, whatever. So he finally talked me into it. So I got this lightweight bicycle. And I would ride to the beach back and forth with these guys. Hey, you got a really good sprint. You're really fast. You got to like quit football and start racing on the velodromes. You know, you got a really good sprint. I said, no, I, that's, that's for weenie cycling. You know, I wanna, I'm going to be a football player like my brother. I don't want to wear spandex. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, I do like spandex, but not, not for cycling. Anyway. <clears throat> that's a whole different podcast. Well, exactly, yes. So, um Anyway, so I get cut. I've been riding quite a bit. And I gotten used to, um, you know, bicycles. And I realized, you know, I, I do kind of out sprint these guys for, you know, these little mock races with you on the street, and blah, blah, blah. Well, turns out at the time, one of the four velodromes, the cycling venues in California was in San Jose. I didn't know at the time, but um, so I bought this very cheap, track bike and i start going 19 years old i start going to these adult classes on saturday mornings and winning everything this is so this is 1983 by 1987 i'm in the u.s national cycling team that's all will happened 1983 somebody says get on a bike on a track oh and by the way there's no brakes yeah how does that go across yeah. your head you know what the funny thing is <clears throat> when you get on um uh the no brakes thing is secondary as far as fear factor, at least was for me. The primary fear factor was the banking of the track. So you have to go at a certain speed so you don't slide down. Now, San, the, the velodrome in San Jose <coughs> is <coughs> it's not terribly steep compared to tracks I raced on around the world. Uh, in fact, it's, we call it a flat, a flat track, but still, it's, it's steep for someone who's not used to it. So, but the, <coughs> the no brakes thing, um, it's, it's not as impactful as it may seem because no one has brakes. Right. So it's not like you're on this fixed gear with no brakes and the guy in front of you can slam brakes on real quick. Everybody's got to slow down at the same rate. Um, now in emergencies, <coughs> pardon me, I need a drink here. That's okay. The, for those who don't have never watched track cycling, it's, <coughs> it's, it's a, I like cycling, so I find it interesting. Probably a lot of people don't. But the, you talk about no brakes, but you know, the whole thing of getting up high on the bank and then stop doing that track stand and waiting for the, your competitor to go mm -hmm. there. There's a lot of strategy involved. It's not literally just get out there, go as fast as you can until you can't go anymore. There's so much strategy involved in track cycling. Yeah. Especially in the sprinting that I did. And that's what you're talking about with doing the track stands and, um, and, and, you know, we call it, you know, a chess game on, on bicycles. Um, the longer events, there's, there's less immediate strategy, long-term strategy about where you want to be, but, but sprinting, you, you can train for, you know, a whole year and you're coming down to national championships or a world cup. And literally you can lose everything you've worked for in a blink of an eye because you, you let the guy get away. You know, he got around you, but, um, yeah, that track stand part of it is there, uh, you know, sometimes, you want to be in the back in the earlier stages as you're winding up to get the draft. <clears throat> Sometimes you know your your opponent very well. You actually do want to be in front because uh, maybe you feel you have more top end than he does. He's quicker, but you have a higher you know top end speed. So that's where you get into those track stands because both guys want to be in the back at this time, and uh, it's it's terribly nerve wracking. One of the things when you're like in the infield with the sprinters, you're all your individual pits and, um, and you look around and it's like, 
um, Maylocks or Rolades <laughs> should be the sponsor because everybody's on it. Everybody's on it because you don't have like 60 minutes like in a football game or, you know, or, you know, hours in a soccer game or, you know, a tennis match. It's literally a matter of a couple of minutes your whole season's riding on. You can't make a mistake. And, and especially when you get up to uh, the upper echelons. If you're race, racing locally, you happen to be in town and it's you, you're a nationally ranked guy, <clears throat> you're racing locally. It's like, okay, I'm going to, you know, should, I should be okay. But <clears throat> when you get up to that event, you're all very, I mean, to that level, you're all very equal. Right. There's no room for error. And you mentioned being able to go around the world behind it. Was there ever a point where the Olympics became a priority or even as a true professional cyclist? Um, the truth is, as, as fortunate as I was to be that good at cycling, and the races, the medals, the jerseys that I won, I never quite got the enjoyment out of that as I did from playing like a pickup flag football game. <laughs> I just, it was something I turned out that, uh, to be good at and I'm very competitive. So I pursued it. Um, but, but there wasn't a passion. In it, it. it wasn't, it's and it's maybe hard for people to understand because I had to work, I mean, tremendously hard. Um, but the, the passion for it, was was never there it was a a simple decision i'm going to do what i have to do to be as good at this as i possibly can period but it was never what i call fun it was i got enjoyment out of it but it's a little different thing so the the olympic pursuit i was never on the olympic team i was on what's called the olympic long team so the Olympic long team <clears throat> is uh, a group of eight of us um, who the, 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 the national sanctioning body decides out of this group is going to come our Olympic representative. And at the time it was one, it was one sprinter from the U S go to go to um, the Olympics. So when we got selected and we, it pretty much had been the national team guys from years before it wasn't by, wasn't anything shocker, but we knew that who the representatives could be. So it would be like if you had a whole bunch of like, you know, uh, uh, first round draft pick quarterbacks out of college and then seven of those guys. And there's another guy, Tom Brady. Okay. Yeah. You know, who's going to be, and that's about how, how much better that one guy was Ken Carpenter than we were at the time, 1988. Um, so maybe not quite that broad of a distinction, but, the other seven of you knew who was the number one rider. Yeah, pretty much. We, we knew that that the other seven, that um, one of us would have to have like a lifetime breakout year to compete with Ken. And, and he was like two or three tenths of a second faster than us, like in a 200 meter time trial, which is pretty significant. You know, it's like a seven point spread, like in a football game. Right. It was pretty significant. Could it be overcome? Yeah. Could he have like the worst day of his life in uh, the Olympic trials? And, and I had the best day of my life and, and beat him, you know, two out of three races. It was possible, but we knew the odds were very, very low. He was that much better consistently. So, um, so that kind of uh, realization along with, you know, I'm doing this because God gave me some talent. I'm competitive. I want to be as 
as good as I can. Um, it was just, it was, it, I never had these like massive aspirations for the Olympics, but I did, I did what I could. <laughs> now to, to jump forward though, a little bit, you ended up competing in the Paralympics. Yeah. That was later. That had to, I don't want to underplay it or overplay it, but when you talk about the passion that probably I would imagine then brought you more enjoyment. You, you really nailed it. It, it was, it was funny. It was two things. One, it, 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 it brought me some enjoyment ultimately with, with uh, won two world championships at the same week long, you know, venue events, two different events. My partner and I won uh, two world championships and set a world record in one of the events. Funny thing is this was after I had retired from cycling. Now, by the way, because I didn't have a wife, I didn't have a kid at the time I was doing, I was on the national team deep into my law enforcement career. So, you know, one day or, you know, I'm, I'm pushing a block and white up and down, you know, the 210 freeway in Pastina and the morning before I go to work, I mean, that morning before I go in, I've already trained four hours, the gym, the track, the road, the turbo trainer, things like that. So I was training incredibly hard and balancing, you know, that with work. So I came to an end in 1988. So when I won my last, my final national championship and I retired, well, four years later, my former national team coach, Andrzej Beck, who's from Poland, and he was a, a 1972 uh, bronze medalist uh, in the Olympics, 1972 Olympic bronze medalist. And he called me, Mark, what are you doing? I said, what do you mean, what am I doing, Andrzej? I'm getting ready to go to work. I have deal for you. <laughs> I said, what he goes, I want you to drive tandem at para world Champion, championships in August. Now this is January he calls me and the, and they're in August, the championship. So anyway, I just thought, why not? So I dusted everything off and I start training on my own. And I went to two or three camps that year at the Olympic training center in Colorado. Uh, and then in Chula Vista, there's two uh, OTCs, Olympic training centers. So with, uh, with my blind female partner in the tandem, and um, I tell people as hard as I work, Paul, as hard as I worked throughout those years in the 80s and 90s in the national team, never worked so hard as preparing for the Para World Championships. It's a whole different can of worms. And I did race tandem in, in the elite world, too, in, in the 80s and 90s. And won two national championships on the, on the tandem. And that's why Andre, my coach, called me because he knew I knew how to drive a tandem. And, um, so it's, it's, it's so complex. It's so hard. Um, but it was, it was amazing. So when we showed up to this little town in Germany, I was mispronounced. I think it's called, uh, Altenstadt. I can never pronounce it correctly. Um, it's about an hour North of Munich, <clears throat> but I show up literally. I mean, the first day when we actually got to the Veldrome, which is small, 200 meter indoor velodrome which is very small for a velodrome usually 250 meters but i walk in there with my sandals on you know my warm-ups and just kind of walking around and and um i'm looking around and go you've got to be kidding i'm looking around in the infield and stuff and i realize that all these other coaches from france Germany, Poland, England had called all of their former elite guys and were racing each other again after all these years. 
So they're driving tandems for their blind female partners too. And and we all start laughing because nobody knew that we were going <laughs> to be there. So it was kind of a, it was kind of a redo from the nineties in, in a way. And then, but to come out of there with two world championships and, and one world record, it was, it, I tell you right now, it was so satisfying. It was, it was such a sen- sense of accomplishment. Well, and to be able to give back to somebody, you well, know, to give back to your partner. Well, this is exactly right because she she was more Pam Pam Fernandez is her name, um, uh, and she uh, she's type one diabetes and she's been blind since she was about uh, about twenty one years old, and um, just an amazing lady and she I I just can't say enough about her and she was literally in tears, um, especially when we actually set a new world record in one of the events and it was so satisfying that I was able to be a part of her success. Absolutely. Yeah, because you were able to take a, a sport that, as you mentioned, you had a natural ability towards, but it never fed your heart. But you could give something to somebody else through that sport. I mean, that had to be amazing. It was amazing. It was, it was amazing. Um, and, it, you know, it really, uh, I had known Pam uh, casually before we wrote Tandem together, but, but never, you know, that well, obviously I wouldn't have no reason to that well. I mean, the intimacy, I mean, literally, you know, feeling you know, the other person's, you know, pedal stroke because you're locked into the same gear on the tandem and, and, um, but, and, and having to work with her and, and help her um, to get her meals and things like this, we do everything together, whether we're on the track, on the road on our road tandem or, um, in the gym, we, we lifted weights together, we do our squats and I get her set up on the rack and she do her set and I do mine. So it was a very intimate, very close, uh, relationship to prepare for that. But when we won and, and, um, knowing that I was a part of that very special success and I'll tell you right now, we had a whole team, obviously it's parallel championships. So you have, um, people who've lost limbs and, and things like this. And we'd be going out for these 50s, 60s, 70-mile road rides, um, you know, in Colorado Springs or down in San Diego. And some of these guys with, you know, a prosthetic leg are just... Hammering it. Yes. I said, hey, Dory, hey, dude, will you, we don't need to win the race. We're just training. These guys are as strong, as fit as anybody you want to come across, and uh, including Pam. And so, yeah, it was, it was terribly rewarding. Now, you mentioned this occurred... And we're going to get into your law enforcement career, but this occurred while you had, you'd already transitioned. You're now a cop. Mm-hmm. Were you getting support from your organization and did they allow you to do this or did it, was it simply, Hey, if you want to go do that, you got to burn your own time. I mean, were they, were they backing you in, so in a, in a sponsorship aspect? No, no, it was, it was, it was very good. In other words, they were very good about letting me burn my own time. They were very good about the vacation using chunks of it at a time. Um, but no, there was no, there was no sponsorship. There was no, uh, no financial, um, uh, no, you know, organizational support in that sense, which, you know, I never expected. And, and, um, I, I, uh, you see some, you see, sometimes you'll see, you know, LA County sheriffs like had a team, right. But again, it, it, even that it didn't come from taxpayer money. Correct. Yeah. So it was privately supported. So, but we didn't even have that. There was no organization. You know, with the California Highway Patrol, we we're so decentralized. We're a state a state agency. So we're from Mexico to Oregon, from the ocean to the desert. And so 
it's sometimes it can be very challenging to have that type of concentrated support because resources, even resources of interest, you know, individual, they're spread out. Well, you're LAPD or your LA County sheriffs, you know, it's very easy to network physically with people. Hey, I want to show you what I'm doing, things like this. And you can kind of concentrate forces because it's kind of hard with, with the CHP um, um, in, in that regard. Um, but, but no, all my bosses from the time, um, you know, I really came on the job. Actually, when I first came on the job in 1990, I took a few years off, you know, brand new officer. I'd gone to Academy. I'm on break in, I'm on probation, trying to learn your way around. So I put the bicycle down in a competitive sense for a few years, but in 1994 is when I say, you know what, I want to start racing again. And, uh, I didn't miss it, even though I said there's the kind of a passion deficit, I still missed it. And so, um, when I got back into it full time, you know, I went to my sergeant, lieutenant, captain, whatever it was, and let them know, hey, can I just condense my time off over the year? I need to take, you know, three weeks off here and then two weeks here and things like that. Maybe four days here for a race in San Diego. Um, never had a problem. Never had a problem. So they were very, very supportive in that sense. Did you ever complete, compete in the police and fire games? Oh, yeah. Through what years? I competed. Uh, I just want to be able to know if the years that I was losing to you. Oh, no. <laughs> well, I only did the sprints. I only did the, uh, uh, I said it was 1990, uh, 19, uh, I'm trying to remember now, 1992, 1994, and 1999. Okay, I didn't, it, okay. I, I really started competing in, in the 2000s, but I was just more joking around. I mean, yeah, I, you know, I did it for fun. People, you know, hey, how come you doing the police Olympics? And I said, well, you know, I, I raced so much, you know, I, I raced like, you know, 12, 10 seasons or whatever it was, you know, with national team, things like that. And it's like, I won't say I got talked into, but I got encouraged to it. Come on, Mark, you represent the high patrol, you know, yeah, yeah, you're a national champion. Come on, whatever. I said, okay. And, and, and I enjoyed it. Did you ever give the world games a try? Never did. Never did. I traveled so much, you know, with the national team and, um, uh, you know, I was so fortunate to be, to, to go all over the world, but there's a lot of work. And the thing is, I probably take that stuff too seriously. I mean, it would have been so much work for me up, up here, just in my head, right. um, you know, loading the two bicycles up again and things like that, depending on where they were. But I, um, I don't know, have, the world games have been, have been domestic recently though, haven't they? Or? I don't follow it anymore. Um, I know when I was heavily into triathlon and, and really thinking that I was going to you know, get more active with cycling. I had a, a good friend of mine who was definitely into it. And a couple of times that he went and competed at the world games, he's like, dude, it's, you're, you're talking a completely different level than what we're used to at the police and fire California, you know, originally it used to be the California police and fire games. Then it became the, the Arizona, California, and then it went Western States. I mean, it just kept growing, but even still at, it, at its most, when it was pretty much the entire Western half of the United States, the competition level was leaps and bounds when you went to the inter the world games. Well, that's what I understand. That's what I understand. And remember I was talking earlier about the, you know, the Maylocks and the Rolades. See, I would have been on a plane going someplace, just like with an IV full of Maylocks. <laughs> I, you know, and so I guess I just didn't want to subject myself to that again. See, I've done it enough. I've done it enough and relaxed, but because 
I, I knew that. I've heard that about the level of competition. Well, the way it was described to me is you get into, you get outside the United States and some of these countries keep their government sponsored athletes on the books as police and firemen because it's a way for the government to pay them to be an amateur athlete, 100%, so to speak. 100%. And so you're going up against, you know, you think you're like, oh, I'm going up against another police officer. <laughs> no, <laughs> no. <laughs> he's not pulling a, a, a 12 hour shift, taking report calls all day, you know? Yeah. So that, yeah. that was the way it was explained to me. I never even, I never even gave it a shot because I knew I got no business being in that competition. Yeah. It's, I, I heard the same thing. I see, you know what? I, you know, Mark, quit while you're ahead. Uh, you know, you've been lucky enough to be successful. You go over there and get your butt kicked by some of these guys it's for the same reason. I say, these guys are, you know, they're training all day long. This is what they're doing. And, and, um, um, so I said, you know, let somebody else enjoy it. Have at it. I can sit back and watch. So I'd had enough. So let's get into your law enforcement career. When does law enforcement cross your radar? Uh, 1988. And how does it cross your radar? By chance. So, um, I, uh, here I was U S national team. I had my degree in public relations and marketing, I was waiting tables in order to uh, have a flexible job where I could travel with the national team. I'd come home, I'd be gone for a month, you know, whatever it was. But I talked earlier about having a plan. So, at, you know, at 25 years old, I thought, you know what? You know, you really should have some kind of plan for the rest of your life. You're not going to race bicycles until you're 59. Um, and I had a buddy of mine. He's six years older, um, but we did grow up together in Alhambra on the same street. Same as Steve Foster. And he had gone into the Ohio Patrol in 1982. And uh, every time I saw Steve, or every time we talked about the Ohio Patrol, all he had to say was how much he enjoyed it. Oh, that's great. It was great, great. Sometimes he'd, he'd show up on the street way out of his jurisdiction, but he'd come by Alhambra in his black and white Mustang. Is Highway Patrol ever out of jurisdiction in California? Not legally. <laughs> Not legally, but administratively all the time. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Take it from a guy who knows. Yeah. Um, but uh, he would come up and visit his mom for lunch. He worked down in the Westminster, you know, northern Orange County um, area, Westminster. And uh, but he'd come up to Alhambra sometimes. And um, and the Mustang, I thought, oh, it looks really cool. It's really cool. I never, ever, ever considered going to law enforcement. But just talking to Steve about how much he enjoyed it, I like cars, you know, kind of a car guy. And which was literally, literally one day, I'd say, hey, Steve, bring an application home for me. Yes, we didn't have online applications in 1988. He had a pencil and paper. So he brought an application home for me. I filled it out, probably incorrectly, mailed it in. And it was 19 months later, I was in the academy. It was, it was on a whim. That's it. It was just by chance. Nothing planned out other than the fact that I decided, you know, I need to figure out some plan and uh, that in conjunction with how much he, uh, he, he enjoyed the job. I have a lot of respect for Steve. I thought, you know, I'll just, I'll just, I'll, I'll just put my toe in the water and see. And then next thing I knew was, you know, interview here, background investigation, psychological, blah, blah. blah and then I'm in the Academy. And you, so you entered 1990, you went to the academy? November 5th, uh, 1990. When you got in, how soon was promoting a priority to you? 
I'm telling you right now, I never had any intention of promoting. Never. I loved being a patrol officer. So before I went in, I never had any any vision of ever wearing stripes or bars or anything else. And then after I graduated and after I got off break in and I'm out there for the first time in this crappy old Crown Vic, um, I, I could the good not, old days. The good old days, yeah. <laughs> I couldn't believe that I was doing that job. I said, this, this has got to be against the law. I'm having too much fun doing this. And I thought, why would anybody want, ever want to promote? I just like, who wants to like, be responsible for somebody else and this and that. I loved it. So, so not only did I not want to ever, you know, be a sergeant or above during the uh, hiring process, when I became an officer, it was even more concrete that I didn't want to promote. That's going to be crazy to promote. And um, so turns out I was a patrol officer for 13 years. I was not a climber. And was there a catalyst that, that kind of prompted you? Because ultimately you retired as a, a captain. So it's not no, like you chief. took... Chief. Chief, my, my yeah. apologies. Yeah. So it's not like you took one step up the ladder. I mean, you took quite a few steps up the ladder. I did. So it, it, there was, I mean, catalyst, yeah, but it was it was, it was was cumulative. Um, I just had people that, hey, Mark, you got to be, you know, you got to promote, you got to promote. And, you know, we need a sergeant like you and... Whether it was my peers or whether it was superiors, hey, we need a sergeant like you. I said, hey, thanks and no thanks. I'm flattered, but, you know. So fast forward, I eventually said, you know what? I got to take this stupid written test to get these people off my back. I, I swear I had no intention. I didn't study for a minute. I didn't do anything. I showed up. I took the test. I I I pass the test which is a mean thing pretty much if you put your name on there i mean i don't mean to downplay it but there's a curve there so um they want to get enough people into the interview process two parts to correct so i did well enough to get into the interview process i did very very well in the interview process but combined with my horrible horrible written score it wasn't enough to get me in the list and i said oh darn i have to go back to patrol so um did that again years later, a couple years later, took it, same kind of thing, not interested. And then I start having some higher ups that were saying, Hey, you need to promote before you retire. And, and this, you know, some chiefs that, that I worked for and things like this. And I thought, you know what, Mark, if you're going to do this again, you know, either be a man and say, you know, what? I'm not going to do it, sir. I'm not going to do it. But if you're going to do it, then do it right. And so um, and then, you know what, you can always wave off the list, change your mind, you know, whatever. I, again, I didn't have a, I didn't know for sure, but what I did know for sure is, you know what, I'm not going to screw around this time. So I partner up with a buddy of mine. We, we got every, you know, summary and study guide we could, we worked hard. And again, I'm not a good test taker. So I, I got basically a, a, an even B on the written test, it would, it would, it would, it would equate to. And, um, and then I did very well in the oral interview again. And, um, so with that, it got me kind of right in the middle of the promotional list. I promoted to Sergeant. And from that point on, it was, you know, I kept getting pushed and I said, okay, you know, go ahead. And 
So I ended up as a, as a two-star, as a division commander eventually before I retired. And you retired what year? I retired uh, December 4th, 2020. It's my last day on the job. And leading into that retirement, did you have a plan for your retirement? Were you thinking about working afterwards? No. Now, this was, you talk about, I talk about plan. We've been talking about plans. So my plan was, you know, I, I was very blessed, you know, good pension from Ohio Patrol. And um, my wife has a, a fantastic job. And she and I individually, before we met, we've been pretty good with our money. So we had a good nest egg. And so I didn't have to work. And here I found myself at the time at what, 57 or whatever with a six-year-old kid. And I thought, great, I'll be Mr. Mom. My wife, she's 13, 14 years younger than me. So she's still working for a while. And, um, and so I thought, oh, that's great. I can let her work. I can take the pressure of raising the kid on the daily stuff, the school, the scouts, the sports. I'll be that guy. So that really was my plan. That really was my plan. I had no intention of working, certainly not in a traditional sense. As you know, if somebody comes along, maybe a consulting thing or maybe this or that, I have no problem doing that. But I had no plan to work eight to five again or nine to five. Why at retirement would you have a, a, a set plan? You've not had set plans your whole life. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> not too much. So the only plan was to raise the kid and, and to be a good partner, uh, you know, to my wife and with the family. Um, but um, beyond that, I didn't have, let's put it this way, I had no aspirations to, to do additional work after retirement. No. And so... We'll put it in an opportunity presented itself. Today, yeah. you are, is the title director of security? Yeah. So, uh, first vice president, uh, a, a director of uh, corporate oh. security. Yeah. And explain what those job type or duties are. And for somebody, it's with a financial institution. So, for somebody who might be interested in doing that job, what did you bring to the table as a former law enforcement officer that they were looking to capitalize on? Well, it's a great question. And, and you've really laid the foundation with that question about plans, which I keep talking about, and it sounds like I never have a plan. I do, but, but this is a, it's a great intro to this whole topic because when they found out from someone who knew me that I was gonna retire um, at the end of 2020, and my current boss was really looking for someone to, to come in and take over corporate security, which he was trying to manage and he just was, you know, not his, not his uh, wheelhouse. So when he reached out to me, um, I said, well, you know what? I, I've done a ton with executive protection that I do. I work with presidents, heads of states. I did all these motorcade details that I know back and forth. I said, but I don't know anything about physical security with systems, with cameras, access codes, things like that. Um, you know, never done much with bank robbery protocol. I said, I know a lot of people, a lot of managers are getting ready to retire in the high patrol who are steeped and that's all they do with state facilities. I mean, no, 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 no. You come highly recommend it. Blah, blah. I said, you know, so this went on for almost six months where I kept telling them, I'm not the man for the job. I'm not the man for the job. Although I do do executive protection. I mean, my team does, but the other part of it, I was pretty ignorant about. So to answer part of your question, that is, um, you know, under, under my purview is the physical security for the institution. So again, I said the cameras, the access, 
access codes, the, the vaults, <clears throat> all of these things come under me. And I, I have a team who knows what they're doing. I've come to understand it now after two years, you know, to an extent, I'm not able to go in there and fix anything, but I know what my team is doing. Um, but the reason my current boss who came looking for me wanted me there, it wasn't for those fine details. What he, um, what he observed when he got there about a year and a half before I did was that the team needed, um, needed someone who had come from a professional management background, needed someone who had a network in law enforcement, um, the ability to pick the phone up and call like, uh, you know, the secret service, you know, SAC or, or FBI SAC or, you know, the local police chief. And I literally had all phone numbers in my phone. I was lucky enough to spend 30 years in Los Angeles County. So everybody I, I knew I'd worked with, I, you know, I bought lunch, they bought me lunch. We worked, you know, very closely together. That's what my boss was looking for. He needed the network and he needed somebody with some, some managerial skills. Um, so, you know, I, I did not want him to be disappointed in my lack of understanding of, of physical security systems. He said, it's okay, Mark, don't worry about that. I said, oh, you know, I just, I, I don't want to underperform and blah, blah, whatever. So interesting interviews, I was telling him, you know what, thanks, but no thanks. And my wife said, what are you crazy? You know, the place is five miles from home and give it a shot. If it's like the worst thing that ever happened to you, you can say, listen, it's not working out. Well, two years later, here I am. So going back to um, um, about you know, the plan thing, sometimes, you know, if you, if, you, if you want to have an opportunity, if one wants to have an opportunity, sometimes you may not be exactly sure what you're planning for. The thing is, is to take opportunities as they come. Don't be afraid to volunteer. Work as hard as you can at whatever job you're doing, whatever assignment you're doing, whatever team you're on. And sometimes things that you would never have imagined will fall your way. The reason that I got offered this job, which is a fantastic job, and I'm very grateful. It's, 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 you know, it's kind of changed the trajectory of our lives, my family, not that we needed it, but it's like, well, my, now we can do more things. Um, it's because I had been a good partner with the Ohio patrol. In other words, with the teams I worked with, the bosses I worked for. And so the person who recommended me for this, by the way, who's also retired now is, is uh, uh, Scott Silsby um, was the deputy commissioner at the time of the Ohio patrol number two in charge. He really ran the department. He was the guy who ran the department. And because he knew I'm mean, one of his chiefs. And before that he had known me as assistant chief, but he knew my personality and he thought, listen, I don't care what the job is. You know, Mark's going to be a good partner. who will give them what he can give them. And that's what my boss, the current boss is looking for. So whole point of that story is, is don't be afraid to get out of your comfort zone. I know it's a cliche, but it's true. If you get out of your comfort zone in the gym, you're probably going to grow. If you get out of your comfort zone in your, in your work, you're going to grow. 
And it's going to open doors for you that you may not even know exist, let alone want to open. You may not even know the doors there. But if you just do the best you can, be a good partner, make yourself available, more often than not, there's no guarantee in life, but a lot of opportunities will come your way if you take care of business today. Well, and and where that leads my mind down is I've heard this often is it's all about networking. It is all about establishing a, a network before you need the network. If you wait till the very end and then all of a sudden you're, oh, I'm six months out. Let me start shooting emails to people who don't know me. That's not developing a network. Developing a network happens five years, 10 years earlier and then, like you said, you may not even be looking for it, but it, you know, I don't know what the, the direct quote is, but it's always, you know, opportunity favors those who prepare themselves. And, and that's what it is, is it's, it's looking at it as a bigger picture than a smaller picture. Yeah. yeah you, you keep on like summarizing, like, like perfectly. I mean, <laughs> like if you ever need like a balloon filled up with hot air, call Mark Garrett. I got right here. I got plenty of it, but it's, it's. It, it's it's totally eloquent, which how you put it. Um, it's so true. And then you you look at I say you know do these things before you need the network, network before you need the network. Then you can you can boil that down, and that's kind of the, the macro, which is so true. But the way to really get to that macro picture is the micro. In other words, call the person before you need something. Damn it. You call up whoever it is, you know, your, your sergeant over here at this law enforcement agency, you know, call the sergeant lieutenant over there, the other agents. Hey, I want to take you to lunch. Hey, well, what do you need? Nothing. I want to take you to lunch, you know, just uh, chew the fat, talk about some things like that. Reach out to people. And, and I don't mean to put it in those terms where it sounds like it's, you know, manipulative. Or it, it shouldn't be. It's just the right thing to do. Because tomorrow when, you know, there's the next riot or things like this, it's great to have that person's cell number um, in your partner from whether it's a different, you know, division of your department or it's a different agency or it's a different profession altogether. It's so important to have those networks. If, if not for you, think of it for, for your agency who you're working for about how you can help your agency, how you can be more effective in providing public service and ensuring public safety because you've you've been proactive at networking with a potential future partner in, in this goal. But when you do that on a, on a one on one basis, if you do that over a career, over a segment of your career to get closer retirement, <clears throat> before you know it, you wake up one day, you have this, this great team of resources you can call on and, um, and they're going to talk about you to other people. Oh yeah. You know what? Um, I know so-and-so over at, you know, XYZ or at LAPD or Ohio Patrol or FBI, whatever it is. So it's thinking those terms, don't be insular. Don't, don't be an island. You have to be proactive and picking up a phone, uh, you know, and, and just saying hi, checking in, taking someone out for a cup, taking someone out for lunch, you know, whatever. It's just so important. It's the right thing to do. And it can really come back to help you in the long run. Now we've talked about you going and going up to San Jose State. In your time 
near the end of your career, have you gone on to advanced education in the sense of your master's? No. <clears throat> and in relation, though, to what you're doing today, somebody wants to go towards corporate security. Obviously, you can speak towards <clears throat> the financial sector. What are some of the key things that they would want to have on their plate coming in the door? You mentioned you had dignitary protection under your belt, but what other things might somebody aim for while they're still in their law enforcement career that they want on that plate? It's it's a really good question. Here's some of the things I, w- I would have done. Had, either had I um, planned to pursue this career or looking back, knowing what I know now, you know, okay, what would have helped me in my current role? There are so many, we're talking about financial side. There are, are so many fantastic, fantastic, especially federal um, uh, uh, law enforcement organizations that deal directly with financial crimes um, or financial which money laundering, which is still under the same umbrella, but you know more um, specific. There are so many organizations that um, it's so easy to get into, become a member of if you're active law enforcement. It's still pretty accessible. Okay, I'm, in, I'm in a few right now post-law enforcement have gotten into because when I got into the industry, I thought, oh, I need to be a part of this. And um, OSAC, DSAC, I won't go, you know, those are some of the, the, the acronyms. But so if you're thinking about post-law enforcement career, look at some of the organizations that uh, that are developed to support that, that, that career you're looking at. Get involved in those now. And there's, there's just no, no reason you wouldn't be able to. And so it does two things, great education. And then of course, great networking. Um, And by the way, and try to find a way to utilize. once you become a member of of, in those organizations, try to uh, see how you can utilize your resources while you're still active. It, It will, it will accelerate. It will accelerate the relationship. It will accelerate the network if you can reuse some of the resources to work on projects now while you're uh, in law enforcement, plus it will accelerate your, your education about how they actually work, what resources um, they can offer you. So now when you're interviewing for a job with, you know, you pick the organization, you can say, I'm a member of this organization, a member of this organization. I've worked with this person from this one, this, this one from that one. So I never did any, any, uh, uh, further education after my, my, uh, undergrad degree, but I do recommend that we're talking about, you know, what's the value of a piece of paper? Well, here's an example. We're talking about very specific, very narrow, a very tangible thing, law enforcement related. And you can also use these organizations in the private sector. So I would highly recommend that. And I don't like to make my podcast political, but something that I want to ask you, because you have the opportunity to see it. Law enforcement right now is in a really unique bubble in that it's not looked on most favorably by society. You are operating in a private sector environment, which is more largely non-law enforcement people. Do you see from your day-to-day that is there a negative impression of law enforcement, or do you not see much, oh, it's just Mark, and he used to be a cop. Or it's like, oh, Mark, he used to be a cop. Kind of, kind of following what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, here's a pleasant surprise. You're absolutely right about 
the negative impression of law enforcement, especially the last few years. It's amazing how intrigued people at my company are about my previous career. Um, you know, one of the executive vice presidents came in uh, yesterday or two days ago. Hey, hey Mark, you have a, now he's an executive vice president. Right? <laughs> you know, he, he's like a chief and I'm like a lieutenant, right? <laughs> he go, hey, hey, Mark, you have a second? I, I said, no, yeah. go like, get out of my office. <laughs> come on. Yeah. We, and we actually share a wall pretty much. He's right. I said, yeah, come. Yeah. What do you, he goes, well, I have a personal question. He had a law enforcement question and I get this all the time. People, they, they've never had now by, since I've been there, I've brought in two other former law enforcement, one from LAPD and one from Anaheim uh, police department, great guys. And they focus primarily on the executive protection, um, for, for obviously our executives. And, um, but we get hit up with this stuff all the time. And, uh, so it's a it's a it's a very positive um, it's a very positive impression that people um, in the bank have of law enforcement. They're very respective, uh, res- um, respectful. Um, they're very inquisitive, um, and and so that's that's a good thing. Now, when I got there um, almost two years ago in this arena. I realized, um, not for the first time, because we realized, you know, as cops that, you know, a person's a fender bender, right? You know, they break a taillight, hit somebody else. Thank God for them. This is probably the most traumatic things happened in our life in the last five years, which is wonderful, right? We, you know, we, we don't want tragedy. We want this to be like the worst thing that happens to you. But for, for us, like, you know, this is my job, you know, whatever, whether it's a fender bender or this is the third of the day and there's going to be 12 more. Third, right. <laughs> exactly. And then, you know, my last crash last, last night was a fatal, you know, and, and, and so it's really important to remember that it may be routine for you, but for other people, it's like the, the, the chances of coming into contact with law enforcement, especially in a non-enforcement contact way are so, so rare. So I realized this, you know, uh, do you mean people don't call 911 and just go, hey, I'm having a great day. Exactly. Just wanted to say hello. Exactly. <laughs> How's the family? So I thought, you know what? I may be able to kill two birds with one stone here because one of the things is I realized that, that um, you know, some of the, the, the managers across, uh, across the, the country that we serve need to have a, a better working relationship um, um, well, they need to be more involved with local law enforcement. And so, and I can't be every place. I can't be in, you know, every city of all the states that we serve and, and, and develop these relationships. So one of the ways I thought that we could really kind of encourage um, that growing of relationships is to have law enforcement come in and do what they do to train civilians. So we're doing this across the country now with actor shooter training. So we've done it in a lot of cities that we serve. And again, it's, a, you know, it's a tedious process because, you know, different branch managers have different schedules and the PDs have different schedules, but we're getting it done. We're getting it done. But what's happened is we, we bring these sergeants or lieutenants, some as captains in with their crew and they're doing uh, active shooter training. People are, they email us, they call, oh my God, 
you know, uh, Captain Farmer. Um, oh, Mark, thank you for saying he's just wonderful. He's, I, you know, I never met, you know, really talked to a, a, a cop before. And it's fantastic. So we're doing two things. We're helping people to be, uh, you, know, uh, you know, more safe in a potential, you know, uh, horrible situation. But they're also developing relationships, relationships with law enforcement. Because I saw, you know, just people on my own floor that one of them come, come over and talk to me. So I thought, wait a minute, this would be good on two ends. We need to increase safety for our associates and we need to, to enhance our relationship with law enforcement. So, and you brought up something, the, the other part that I was thinking about. So you've onboarded former law enforcement as part of your job and, and hiring people. So going on the opposite side, what do people want to have on their plate when they walk in the door? What's your advice for former law enforcement walking in the door to leave at the door? You mean from their, from their career? Yeah. What don't they, what shouldn't they bring with them? Well, the, um, that's, that's a good question. Um, I think, look, from, from my experience and, a lot of this is, you know, it's personality, it's innate, we're all different. But from my style of management, what I don't like, nobody likes it, but but what I try to avoid at almost all costs is controversy. If I'm interviewing somebody or in talking to their previous employer or whatever, and there's any hint the person wasn't a team player, I can't use them. So, you know, say, what should you leave at your, you know, your previous, you know, your, your law enforcement career? Listen, if you've been that person who doesn't get along, you know, very well, not looking at the bigger picture for the success of the team, you can't change that in a resume. In other words, if you're talking to somebody about reputation, but if you can, um, with whatever time you have left in your current career, if you can, if you can work on those skills, if you can work on on that, if you can really enhance that reputation, if it's good, make it better. If it's not so good, make it better. That's, you know, again, this is very specific to me. Right. I tell people all the time that if I have a choice between um, uh, the, the expert of experts, the oracle in this particular, you know, field that I'm looking for or whatever, but they don't get along with people very well. They're a cancer. I, I don't care if you give me somebody who's the, the 2.0 GPA, but they, they are looking out for the success of the team. I will take that person 100% of the time over somebody who may more, maybe more academically inclined and successful. Now, if I can get both, if I can get the Einstein and the team player, I've won the lottery, but I will always take the team player over. So what, you know, what do you, do you leave behind? Um, if you can come in, in other words, even in your own mind, if you can leave like insular thought behind, if you come in and you realize, look, you have to be a part of the organization. And sometimes as cops, I, I get it. We, we rely on ourselves. We were set in our ways, things like that. But when you come into the private sector, uh, one of the things that is, is so important, it's important anywhere, but 
if you can look out for the betterment of a team, if you can understand that you're not the the most important person in the room or the uh, or in the organization, if you can try, if you can say, listen, I want this team, I want this enterprise to succeed. Here's what I can bring as part of that. Here's what I can bring as part of that. That that's good for me. So leave that mentality behind about you have to either know everything you have to you have to do everything you don't have to do everything do everything you can to be a part of the team so i know it's maybe it's not specific answer but um because there are certain things you can't leave behind they're going to stick with you like luggage right (laughs) but if you can change your mindset if you can develop your mindset those are things i would say leave behind things i want you to bring are how do we make the team succeed the, the analogy that I've heard and been told when you make the transition from law enforcement to the private sector is you go from telling people to do things to asking people to do things. Is that a fair analogy in, in operating within the, the private sector waters? No, that's a really interesting question. I, I, um, I, uh, I'll make sure my boss sees this. Uh, so, <laughs> hey, Mark, you were pretty frank about this, weren't you? By the way, my boss is great. My boss is, you know, the whole team's great. But <clears throat> one of the things when I when I came into the unit, I guess here it depends. It really depends. Um, we all have to, you know, for lack of a better word, Paul, we we all have to politic a little bit. You know, that's part of being in the team. Um, you got you have kind of have to find your niche. Um. In, in a you know in a daily tangible way but you also have to find your niche about uh like the asking or telling and and there can be a balance there you know i had a conversation yesterday with um someone who's not on my team but we worked together very closely um and she came to me with a, a concern and i i asked her i said well okay what is exactly you need from me well, I'm not sure of this and that, and, you know, not sure about that over there. I said, well, uh, and she was talking about another, another employee. I said, listen, well, I'll, I'll go to this person and, and, you know, address the issue. I said, but you need to tell me exactly what you need, what the issue is. I said, because as the boss, I'm going to look really silly walking in, asking somebody to modify something without an explanation as to why. Right. And um, until she said, so we ended up having a half an hour conversation, terribly pro- pro- productive, terribly productive. And she's, and by the way, great, great lady. I, we worked together very well. But on this one, I needed to like pull out of her what, what, what does you need? The point is when she walked in, I didn't shut her down because I was a little bit like, you know, I, no, you know, in my mind, but I said, no, no, Mark, you can't behave like that. You have to listen. You have to listen. You have to take her concern seriously because she may be onto something. You don't know until you like open your ears and listen. And I really did understand what she was saying, but the end of it, she don't mark you right. You know, it, we don't need to address it, but that's part of like, do I tell or do I ask? And that was type of a, a kind of a, a balancing act. I told her I can't do anything unless I have more specific information. So I asked her to help me help her. So that's where you have to, you have to be a balanced person, especially if you're in management. 
Um, I think on, on any level, but you probably get more of it when you're management. More often those things come up. So, um, so it's not an absolute going from a teller to an asker. Some, you got to be careful because what I found out um, um, that if you are an asker too much, people start losing respect for you. Mm. Sometimes you have to tell people the way, ask the boss, the way you're going to run things. And then you can ask them. Now, listen, is there something I'm missing? Can you, can you help me to implement this where it's less painful for you or things like that or for the team? But you have to tell them your vision and not only your own team, but you have to tell other people outside your team. And, and you know, I'll tell you right now, when you're in a place where, you know, you know in the back of your mind, listen, you're happy at your job, you enjoy being it, but you, you know, when, when you've been lucky enough to kind of put things financially in place for the last 25, 30 years, and you're pretty comfortable, there's a little less stress about what people think. If you get my drift, in other words, you can be as transparent about what you want to do or what you believe or what you think is right or wrong without too much repercussion. But what I found out is people have a great deal of respect for that. And because I've been a little bit more frank with people in, in prominent positions, it's turned out the working relationship is much better than what it would have been had you just jump into, yes, sir, no, whatever. You, you need to be honest. You need to be an adult and give adult feedback or advice or wants. And um, so, again, it's a balancing act. Let's transition to your new hobby. And I'll, I'll call it a hobby right now. <laughs> I don't know where you want it to go, but you have your own podcast. I do. Developing and, and, and starting out. How'd that come about for you? Well, it goes back to your talking a few minutes ago about the respect or lack there for law enforcement. And um, about what's it, five years ago now, we actually started, some friends and I started uh, a nonprofit. Um, now, don't get confused. Listen carefully. They're two. They're very <laughs> similar. But the nonprofit is the Leo Project. And that's just what it sounds like. And so um, we started that in order just to um, simply provide some financial relief for the families of fallen law enforcement officers. And uh, we started off in a bang and then riots hit and then COVID later on, things like that. Now I said, I mean, it was four years ago. And, um, but we initially were able to uh, provide about $10,000 for the mother of a, uh, um, a murdered state trooper in Arizona. And just in a couple of weeks, we're going to, um, provide some money for one of the two families of the El Monte PD officers that were slain several months ago. Um, actually, the, the institution I work for, they're going to provide one check for one family, and then my nonprofit is going to provide the check for the other family Very t- cool. t- together. So, it's, by the way, it's been a, the bank has supported my nonprofit. It's, it's, been, it's been fantastic. So... A couple of years ago, I was just, you know, saying to my wife and saying to some colleagues when I was still on job, I said, this is out of control. The, you know, my opinion, the complete irrational hatred of an attack on law enforcement because of these isolated. And I, I make no bones about it. These are isolated incidents where you have idiots doing things. We're talking about, you know, Derek Chauvin, obviously the most glaring example 
these are so rare and to paint all the law enforcement with the same brush because of these wildly rare um, transgressions of law and policy is completely irrational. And so fast forward, I wanted to do something about it. And um, I knew as a chief of the Ohio Patrol, I really couldn't speak my mind, you know, on air and, and things like, totally understandably, and it wouldn't be appropriate. So I waited until I was retired. And about a year ago, um, a two friends uh, of mine and I just start working on the idea. And we released our first uh, podcast at the beginning of October, just a, you know, a couple of months ago. Um, so I said, don't be confused. So the nonprofit is the Leo Project, but the podcast is your leonation.org your leo is law enforcement officer nation.org um, we've had some great guests already we have some in the can we haven't released yet but um i have a federal official coming on in a couple of weeks we've we've done county sheriff we've done not 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 los angeles county uh out of state county but so we have a it's a very eclectic group of guests that we've had on and i'm learning like you have over the last year paul and um so we're hoping you you find us, like us, follow us on, on YouTube, Instagram, and we're putting out stuff. I'm putting out short videos, kind of more about life and principles and rule of law and civil society. One short video is about my dad. So you guys have heard, you know, today about that. But we're putting out short videos on YouTube and Instagram, along with the full-length podcast on, on, on uh, Your Leo Nation. And not to try to overly boil it down, but your ultimate goal is to just shine a more positive light on law enforcement by highlighting active law enforcement officers, correct? Not just active law enforcement. Again, these are some, but listen, we have active law enforcement. We have retired law enforcement. We have a uh, uh, county, a oh. city, sitting county DAs. So we have uh, uh, all types of topics, you know, um, whether it's, you know, micro tactical stuff that we'll be talking about or whether it's, it's broader um, uh, philosophical and operational uh, department policy kinds of things, department uh, vision, like I said, on the prosecution side with <clears throat> former uh, deputy DAs, current sitting DAs, uh, things like that. So it's a, it's a, it's a wide March. And it's really about the process. It's, it's about what really happens in the world of law enforcement. Um, and some, uh, some, some fun stuff. We just had uh, Justin Melnick from um, <clears throat> the CBS. Uh, I think they're C- CBS still. They may have transitioned to an, another platform. But uh, SEAL Team, the uh, show SEAL Team, which is wildly successful. He's a technical advisor and former law enforcement uh, officer uh, on SEAL Team. So, and huge supporter of law enforcement, understands law enforcement, a civilian, but it has, has a ton of military training. <clears throat> That's why he's an advisor in the SEAL team. So a lot of different aspects, but the you know question you asked about, you know, is the purpose to shine a light on, on a positive light on law enforcement? I mean, yes, ultimately, but I think more specifically, it's to reveal really what happens with law enforcement to explain the necessity of law enforcement to put in perspective something my dad brought to me perspective what is the real problem in society is it law enforcement 
or is law enforcement one of the necessary remedies for the problem? Um, what happens if law enforcement, certainly if law enforcement goes away, like some people, some idiots, this is me speaking, I know it's Paul's show, saying, well, we, want, we need to dismantle law enforcement. I mean, this is a psychosis. We need to dis- dismantle law enforcement. Why don't we dismantle the fire department too? And when your house burns down, you can just pee on it or get your water hose out. We don't need fire. No, we don't need law enforcement. These are absurd notions. Do we need to improve law enforcement? Any law enforcement agency who is not introspective, who is not self-regulating, who is not self-critical, they are, they are going the wrong way. Every true law enforcement leader, every true law enforcement top or executive management always has to be in the improvement mode. Otherwise, you're going backwards. So, yes, law enforcement needs to be um, on the cutting edge of self-criticism all the time. But the notion that law enforcement is the problem um again it's absurd it's 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 evil it's it's completely detrimental to a civil society not only the notion of getting rid of law enforcement altogether but these attacks on law enforcement the idea that that law enforcement officers are going to be are going to want to be more proactive if they have an, an increasing fear that they're going to be scrutinized for a proper action. And this is what we're seeing. I mean, there's just no doubt about it. You know, none of us are making this up. When we look, listen, I, I was a chief. I had, I had 1,200 officers who worked for me, 400 civilians, but I had 1,200 officers in Los Angeles County that worked for me. And you can attribute this to various factors. But there's no doubt that over the last several years, <clears throat> activity dropped Mm -hmm. because listen hey what do i have to do forget about losing my job forget about being prosecuted what do i have to do to stay out of the limelight of scrutiny i don't want to end up on a news segment being accused of something even if a year from now or six months i'm completely exonerated why do I want to drag myself, my family, my children through this incredible stressful uh, situation? So I'm going to do what I have to do. Um, so these types of things, these attacks on law enforcement, all it does, not only does it hurt society, not only does it hurt individual people, here's the irony. The irony is the people, the, the segments of our community, that need law enforcement the most are almost always the ones that are hurt the most by law enforcement pulling back proactive, uh, you know, uh, enforcement. This is just a reality. It, it may be, it may be politically incorrect. It may be cold and cruel, but it's a stark reality where most of the crime is happening is where you're, we're seeing reduction in, um, in the proactive you know, law enforcement behavior, people who live in Brentwood and Beverly Hills are not going to suffer if a law enforcement officer slows down a little bit of activity, just the way it is. But if you live where I grew up, 
by Avalon Imperial in Southeast Los Angeles, where the Crips and the Bloods were born, and you have less law enforcement, guess what's going to happen? So this is why I wanted to push back in that sense. I just want some balancing act here. And, um, and that's what we're working at. And so we're learning. We're on the very beginning of the curve. And, and being here today, it's a great education for me. But that's what we're working at. I'm not further up the curve than you are. I'm still, I'm still in the crawling stages myself. I don't think so. But, but I, I do appreciate the plug. And that's what we're working on. And, and um, um, you know, we are using the, uh, the, the Leo Nation to ask people to donate to the Leo Project. By the way, the Leo Project, it's your Leo Project. It's the, actually the, the, uh, the website, yourleoproject.org, if you want to donate to uh, the nonprofit. And uh, yourleonation.org uh, is, um, is, is the website for the pro- podcast. But <clears throat> that's what we're working at. And uh, I said some of the guests are, are just terribly interesting. Um, um you know, one of the um, the sheriffs, and you guys, it's actually, it's on there now on the website. It's uh, uh, Michael Atkinson. He's the Walton County, Florida sheriff. <clears throat> I want you to go, it, just for no other reason, go to the Walton County Sheriff website and look under, it's either maybe uh, employment or it's, um, uh, uh, um, I can't remember now what, but you'll find that on there, but they have a list of, of expectations. I'm telling you right now, if you had that list of expectations in California on any law enforcement website, somebody would sue. It's, 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 and I'll give you one example. And this, this goes to what do I want to do with, with your legal nation It's things like this sheriff is doing. It's like, look, If you want to be a Walton County Sheriff deputy and you think you're going to have weekends and holidays off, don't apply. (laughs) You don't work for you. You work for the people of Walton County. If you think you're going to come on this job and you're not going to miss your kid's sporting event, don't apply. If you think you're going to come on this job and then uh, a week from later, you're going to dye your hair purple, uh-uh, it won't happen. And it goes on and on and on. And these are just bam, bam, bam. So I asked him on air, you, can, you know, please watch it. I said, well, Sheriff, I said, well, how are you doing with recruitment? In other words, they're being exclusive. Don't come here if X, Y, Z. I'm thinking in my mind, well, they must be doing okay with recruitment then. I said, how, how's recruitment? He goes, oh, we're hurting big time. The point is this. He's suffering from with the challenges of recruitment like every other law enforcement agency is. But what he will not do is compromise his principles. He's making sure as the leader of that organization, he's holding himself, his team, and everybody who works for him to the highest standards. And this is a leader. And this is the problem we're having in law enforcement. The external attacks, this goes back to what my dad taught me about circumstances. We all have challenges. We all have circumstances that we don't like that occur, that happen to us. But what you can never do is change your principles. So we're seeing people in law enforcement, in leadership roles. I don't call them leaders, sorry. I mean, they're in leadership roles, but they're not acting like leaders. They are succumbing to these very, very difficult, I don't mean to downplay 
the external attacks and external pressures. They're real. But that's why they get paid the big bucks to stand up to those challenges, to lead by example, to say what the truth is. I understand if you're appointed by a city council or mayor, as opposed to being elected as a sheriff, these things can be very difficult. But damn it, you've probably been on the job 30 plus years if you're chief someplace. I would imagine in California, you probably have a good pension to fall back on. There's very little reason you shouldn't be a grown-up man or a grown-up woman and lead. If you don't want to lead, then leave. That's all. That's all. Now, if you believe some of the things, God bless you, it's fine. But if you don't, don't say one thing behind closed doors and then go out and acquiesce to the, you know, the forces that are trying to tell down law enforcement in the next breath. Don't do it. I couldn't sleep at night like that. So some people can, which is too bad. And the only other thing I would add to that is I just hope that their for their forethought is to take care of their people. Right. See, Paul, this is all, it's, it's, it all goes hand in hand. If you're not, if you're not pushing back against, you know, give you an example again, here, I'm a black guy whose you know, parents went through, you know, what we talked about earlier, horrible, horrible stuff. So I don't, you know, pretend, you know, there's no racism exists and things like this. But when someone says law enforcement is systemically racist, so those of us in law enforcement or, or were in law enforcement for as long as we were, or, or, you know, many of you listening are in law enforcement. Do you have some knuckleheads here and there? Absolutely. But just ask yourself, just ask yourself in your, in your agency or in your agency, your law enforcement community, other agencies, you know, very well, is systemic racism really a problem? Is that really exists? You know, your eyes actually witness that. My guess is the answer is no, but you'll have people who wear four or five stars in the lapel who will go up and say, yes, we are going to challenge systemic racism in our agency and every other agency. They're lying. They're lying. In my humble opinion, this is what I, I, this is what one of the things that, that really uh, provoked me to start your Leo nation, because we have to start dispelling these rumors, rumors, these accusations and accusations, really, if they're not true, if they're not true, accusations are only as powerful as the people in charge allow them to be. If you don't push back, the accusations become true. If you acquiesce, if you agree with them, the accusations become true. And now you've dug yourself a hole that you are not going to get out of anytime soon. And you go... The one last thing I'll add on that is you talk about scrutiny in the media and, and this is across the board. It's not just law enforcement. I think one of the biggest disservices media does is they run with a story on Monday, but they never do a subsequent follow-up either ver- verifying or, oh, this has been corrected. This story that was brought to light, here's new information. It's always kind of like, we ran with that one on Monday, but there's a whole new different story on Thursday, and we could care less about that one on Monday, but people still remember that story. Of course they do, and, and it, it, it's a great point. You know, it's the, it's the, uh, you know, it's the headline, um, headline style of, 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 of journalism, and um, forget about peeping, people wanting to read the details. It's so many in media, so many media platforms and organizations don't even write the details anymore. Uh, they make accusations. They don't follow up, like you said. 
and um, you know the term drive-by media is out there, and 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 I, I agree with that to a very large extent, especially when it comes to law enforcement. Um, it's um, it, it's it's tragic, and it's really um, you know it's it it can be suicidal for um, a culture um, to to engage in this type of behavior to scapegoat. Uh, the one entity, again, not every individual officer, but the scapegoat and institution as the problem when it's not true and when that institution, it really is the only thing between civility and total chaos. It's the only thing. Um, and by the way, it doesn't take that many people to to create chaos. We, we know about you know 10% of the population engages in about 90% of all crime. So it's a relatively small, small amount, but those people engaging that behavior, I mean, look at retail theft, for example, can create an enormous amount of chaos, can inflict an enormous amount of damage on society, um, socially, morally, physically, economically. Um, in California, look, there's not prosecuting anything under 950 bucks when people walk into a Walmart and steal it. I mean, this is, this is not healthy. And this is a result. All of these things, I talk about this, you know, different shows or different, different parts of your Leo nation about, you know, prop 47, AB 109. Um, uh, you know, there's so many, <laughs> so many, um, these things, I'm, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but these things are, they're not all unrelated. It's a general mindset now of, of looking at other avenues to address so-called social or racial injustice. They're looking at all types of things um, to, to remedy this. Okay, we're going to, you know, we're going to downgrade this from a felony to a misdemeanor. We're going to let these people out, you know, instead of six years are going to get out 18 months now they're back on the street and you know, things like this rather than the two words is hyphenated self-responsibility you can downgrade you cannot charge you can release you can do all of these things and by the way i'm all for you know reforming certain aspects of the penal system there maybe there, there probably are things where people should be released earlier things like that or not I have no problem with that. But we're talking about macro, we're talking about the, the most prominent things that we can do, right? Okay, what are the big things that we can do? I ask people this, what, what do you think would be the single most, not a one size fits all, not a, you know, a magic pill, but what's the one thing that would most make society safer, healthier, more civil? Every individual increasing the notion of self-responsibility of abiding by the rule of law or by being equitable with the treatment that people get based on skin color or economics, which of those two would be more impactful? And I don't even answer the question. To me, it's rhetorical, but I at least want people to think about that. If we taught self-responsibility, if we taught what my father 
12-year-old black kid in the Deep South during the Depression under Jim Crow with no parents knew, either inherently, which just kind of pure luck, or he was taught by his mother, which was, that was the predominant part, that I have to take care of myself. I cannot break into that market to steal food. I have to drive a truck and deliver ice to my future wife to earn money to buy food. If more people were taught those basic things, we'd be much, much, much better off as a society. But somehow, over the years, we've lost that that um, inclination to do that. I think it's more than lost. I think it's been, it's been attacked. But this all goes back to um, law enforcement. I talk about, on your Leo Nation, about law enforcement starting with the individual that we should be our own first responder. That if, if we embrace a notion of doing the right thing, looking out for our neighbors, looking out for obviously our family, abiding by law, if you just think about that, if you multiply that by 300 million people, or let's just say 150 million adults, whatever it is, would that be a positive or a negative? If we taught that, if we demanded that of our young people, if we demand it that you abide by the rule of law or if not, there are consequences at a relatively young age, would that have a positive or negative effect? So that's, that's, um, that's where we are. That's why I start the early nation. I really, really, really want to fall back on those principles that my dad taught me. Well, and, and for me, I often think about, because We've got eight years between us, but I, I think our parents were of generational, the same period. Mm-hmm. And I often think back to how I was raised. And it would be funny if I could bring parents from the 60s, the 50s, 60s, and 70s to today and just let them watch how some kids talk to their parents today and just watch these, you know, old parents just completely lose their mind. Yeah. Because it was, it it we were raised differently. The, the, for me, I always boil it back down to, I was told when you step out that front door, you're not just representing yourself, you're representing this family. And I always had more of a fear in that if I ever did something wrong, let's say I ended up in jail, do not call my dad. Just leave me here. Do not call. There's nothing that you can do to me in the legal system that scares me more than what my dad's going to do. Right. And there, I'm sorry, there's something to that, that little bit of healthy fear. 100%. 100%. You know, you, you touched on it with your dad. It's a big problem. I mean, it's a big, big problem. And with lack of fathers in the home. Here's the thing, you know, when, when you look at, when you, when you look at the numbers, you know, whether it's the state penal system, incarceration, or it's federal, whatever it is. When you look at incarceration, when you look at the violent offenders in prison, it doesn't matter what race, whether it's black, white, Asian, Hispanic, it doesn't matter. When you look at violent inmates incarcerated, about 80% grew up without a dad in the home. It's across the board. It is probably the single most important element in especially a boy's life growing up um, is to have 
that that role model, that influence, and that person who instills proper fear in you if you screw up. That will, more than anything else, again, there's no magic pill in life, but more than anything else, that will help to keep a kid, especially a male kid, on, on the right track. Um, it's just kind of indisputable when you look at the numbers. But these are things that are not talked about. I mean, they're not comfortable. They're politically incorrect. They're sexist. They're whatever people want to call them. I've never looked at things like that. You know, and I just like, well, what are the facts? You know, Jack Webb, uh, Dragnet, it's like just the facts. It's just, okay, what are the facts? Here's an element. If, 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 we, if we found out that 80% of violent offenders in, in prison, if we found out that 80% of them um, uh, uh, grew up eating a certain candy bar, that's all they, we would say, listen, we got to knock this candy bar out because it's causing these kids to become violent offenders. There wouldn't be, there would be no question about it. We'd everybody be on board, political persuasion, social justice. Everybody would say, we got to can have them have the candy bar. But for some reason, we talk about this aspect of it. It's, it's taboo. Not for me. Um, it's just a reality and it's understandable. I mean, I think it's understandable for most people, but, um, so, but, you know, same way I said, my dad, like, you know, my dad, same thing. I did not want to disappoint him. My dad had a very, um, um, very strong man, but he wasn't, but he, he wasn't heavy handed, but he was strong enough where I, I knew my dad hit me twice in my life, hit me twice, uh, in, in my life, but that was enough. I'm glad he did, by the way, I'm glad he did. He should have hit me more. <laughs> um, but yeah, these are these are the the self policing things that that society has drifted from the sense of self responsibility. Um, we've drifted away, and by God, listen, <clears throat> I am the last person in the world to talk about you know being perfect in self responsibility. I have fallen way short on my own principles. I, way short. <clears throat> things I'm I'm just not you know. I wish that I could go back and fix. But here's the point. I, the only reason I feel bad about it is I do have principles. I didn't live up to my own standards. Well, I'll say this. At least my parents gave them to me. They enforced them, and I carry them with me. Nobody's going to be perfect in life. Um, but if we don't encourage people to be responsible for their own actions and own them, we're in for a world of hurt. I wish you the best of luck going forward with your podcast. If somebody's got more questions as far as making their transition, especially to the financial sector, can they reach out? I would, I tell you right now, I would be honored. I would be honored. And uh, I, I know I ramble a lot. And Paul, you've been very patient with all my diatribe. But um, there are a lot of things you can do. If you go to yourleonation.org, uh, there's a contact us there. The emails come directly to me and my team. There are three of us, um, but you can email me. I check them, uh, you know, pretty much every night when I get home from work, I check my Your Leo Nation email. Please send me an email. Um, if you're local, I will buy you lunch. Anybody who reach out to me for help, I'm honored. I uh, buy you a chicken sandwich, take you at Baja Fresh, but please reach out. Um, and uh, I do have quite a network. You never know. You might talk to me and I know somebody 
you need to meet, I'd be happy to help. I'll make sure I include those the website or the web address in the show notes. Much appreciated. I'm really, really grateful for the time today. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Thank you for taking your time to listen to the podcast. I truly hope you enjoyed it. Not only is the podcast available on audio platforms, but you can also watch it on YouTube at the Transition Drill Podcast channel. Please subscribe for future episodes. The best way you can help the show is by getting the word out. If you think somebody else might enjoy it, I would appreciate it if you would share it with them. Also, if you have the time, please go to Apple Podcasts and leave me a rating. I welcome your feedback, both positive and negative. You can also go to the website, transitiondrillpodcast.com, and through the contact tab, send a message directly to my email with any comments or suggestions. Thank you again, and I hope you tune in for the next one.